Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. May 27th, 1942. Czechoslovakia. World War II is raging, and the country has been under the yoke of German occupation for over three years. Reinhard Heydrich, one of the highest ranking members of the Nazi Party and the man in charge of German interests in Czechoslovakia, is being driven to work from his home, north of central Prague, to his base of operations at Prague Castle. His mode of transport is a green open top Mercedes. Heydrich is sitting in the front alongside his driver, who slows down for a sharp turn at a tram stop. Suddenly, a man steps into the road, pulling out a submachine gun from under his raincoat and pointing it at Heydrich. He pulls the trigger, but nothing. The gun is jammed. From what the story sounds, you're listening to Crosshairs, in each episode, you'll be immersed in some of the most significant and shocking assassination attempts and successes in human history. From meticulously planned hits to killings gone wrong and the moments in time which led to murder. So train your ears and listen as we walk you towards the moment where victim and assassin collide. This is Crosshairs, Episode 8. Reinhard Heydrich. Reinhard Heydrich was born in the town of Halle an der Salle in central Germany in 1904. He was the second of three children and was raised by his father Bruno and mother Elizabeth. They were a musical family. Bruno was a singer and composer, whilst Elizabeth's father was the director of the Royal Conservatory of Music in Dresden. In 1899, the Heydrichs opened a conservatory of their own in Halle. Reinhard was a skilled violin player, and his parents hoped for him to pursue a career in music. The family lived a relatively comfortable middle-class existence, but Bruno was perpetually frustrated by his inability to join the ranks of polite society in Halle. This was partly due to his religion. They were a Catholic family in a society where Protestantism was the dominant religion of the day, as well as his working-class roots. But the main obstacle preventing Bruno from taking what he felt was his rightful spot amongst Haller's elite was the rumour that he was Jewish. This wasn't the case, but at a time when anti-Semitism was rife, even the mere suggestion of Jewish heritage was enough for the Heydrichs to remain perpetual outsiders. It was a bitter pill for Bruno to swallow, especially given his own personal distaste for the Jews. Reinhard was bullied at school as a result. Furious at being singled out in this way, he became something of a lone wolf, 
albeit one determined to outclass his fellow pupils both academically and physically at every opportunity. Following Germany's loss in World War I and the economic turmoil the country went through after the Treaty of Versailles, the Jews and their alleged sabotage of German interests became a convenient scapegoat for the country's woes, an idea propagated by the defeated German military leadership. Desperate for an outlet for their grievances, many Germans joined right-wing paramilitary organizations. At the age of 15, Reinhardt, influenced by his father's fervent nationalism, became a member of the Maraca Freikorps, a notoriously brutal group that fought to suppress revolutionary activity in Halle. Later on, he joined the Deutsche Schutz und Schutzbund, the largest and most active anti-Semitic group in the country. After leaving school, Heydrich enlisted in the Navy. Still, the rumors about his Jewish heritage plagued him, and he quickly earned the nickname Blonde Moses. He soon proved himself to his superiors, who took note of their new recruit's technical proficiency and quickly rose through the ranks to first lieutenant. A promising career seemed to be ahead of him, but his trajectory stalled dramatically in 1931, when Heydrich was discharged from the Navy following accusations of conduct unbecoming of an officer and a gentleman. Earlier that year, Heydrich had become engaged to Lena van Osten, who would eventually become his wife. Soon thereafter, he was accused of breach of promise by a previous girlfriend whom he had spent the night with and whose well-connected father demanded that Heydrich preserve her honor through marriage. Heydrich did not acquit himself well at the hearing, his arrogance winning him no friends amongst the court, who ultimately discharged him, leaving the newly engaged 28-year-old unemployed at the height of the Depression. It was during Heydrich's time in the Navy that the Nazis became a force to be reckoned with in German politics. In the 1930 elections, they received 6.4 million votes, winning 107 seats in government in the process. Heydrich joined the party shortly after his dismissal, becoming member 544,916. He had a contact in the party, Karl von Eberstein, a member of the Schutzstaffel, or SS. Beginning as a guard unit for Nazi party meetings, the SS grew in size and influence over the course of the Second World War to become one of the most powerful organizations in Nazi Germany. A transformation Heydrich would play no small part in. Joining it was a priority, and within weeks he had secured a significant position, taking charge of what would become the counterintelligence division of the SS. Working out of the Brown House, the mansion which served as the Nazi party headquarters in Munich, he began developing a complex network of spies and informers. He filled thousands of index cards with information gathered by his men, information that the Nazi party used to move against enemies both outside and within the party. By 1932, Heydrich's intelligence division had become so influential that it had splintered off from the SS, becoming its own organization, the Sicherheitsdienst, or SD for short. Deliberately isolated from the main party headquarters in a secluded house outside Munich, Heydrich staffed his organization with bright and ambitious young men, but was careful never to afford any of them too much autonomy, perpetually paranoid about attempts to usurp him. Heydrich's position at the helm of the SD 
set him on the path to become one of the most influential figures in Germany following Hitler's appointment as Chancellor in 1933. In 1936, Heinrich Himmler, SS leader and chief of the German police, centralized Germany's political and criminal police forces. He appointed Heydrich head of the security police, or SIPO, which consisted of the Kripo criminal police and Gestapo political police. Heydrich wasted no time in weaponizing the Gestapo against the Führer's political opponents, spearheading a wave of arrests that saw prominent labor organizers, journalists, and Jewish leaders put behind bars. The passing of the Gestapo law allowed the political police to carry out their work without judicial review, allowing them free reign to make arrests as they saw fit, without interference from the courts. By the time the war ended, the Gestapo were responsible for the enforced disappearances of over 6,000 people. Heydrich's most lasting contribution to the Nazi regime, however, was the part he played as one of the architects of the Holocaust. Heydrich shared the party's belief that in order for the new Germany to thrive, the Jews must be expelled. He was one of the organizers of Kristallnacht, a pogrom against Jews throughout Germany in 1938 in which over 7,000 Jewish-owned businesses and synagogues were destroyed by paramilitary forces. More than 20,000 Jews were deported to concentration camps in the days following the attacks. During the occupation of Poland in 1939, members of the Einsatzgruppen, paramilitary forces under Heydrich's control, cut a bloody path through the country. Following closely behind the army, Jews, priests, and members of the ruling class in Poland were executed en masse by these death squads. The Jews who were spared were forced into ghettos for future removal. Heydrich eventually became responsible for coordinating the transportation of European Jews to concentration camps in the East. The logistics of such an operation involved cooperation from a number of different bureaucracies, from the railways to the foreign office. Heydrich presented the plan during the Wannsee Conference, a meeting of 15 high-ranking Nazi party and German government officials, where the main topic of discussion was the final solution to the Jewish question. The language during the presentation was carefully chosen, with phrases like kill or execute nowhere to be found, but those in attendance were under no illusions as to what was being proposed. Heydrich played an important role in Hitler's genocide, and shares a large portion of the responsibility for the fate of the six million Jews who perished. The sheer scale of the barbarity of his actions weighed little on his conscience, however, and he turned his focus to Prague, where Heydrich would take on his final project for the Nazi regime, and where he would ultimately meet his end. By the time of Heydrich's arrival in 1941, Czechoslovakia was now in its third year of Nazi occupation, with its strong army and substantial industrial infrastructure, control of the region was high on Hitler's list of priorities. Beginning with the annexation of the Sudetenland in 1938, a region primarily inhabited by German speakers, Hitler's forces extended their presence in the country with the creation of the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia the following year. The Czechs would be permitted to retain a government but one with no say in issues of defense and foreign affairs, effectively leaving them under German control in the form of a Berlin-appointed Reichsproctor. Hitler had initially selected Konstantin von Neurath for the role, 
an experienced politician and former foreign minister, but replaced him with Heydrich after what he felt was an ineffective tenure, in which van Neurodt exhibited a soft touch, failing to curb growing anti-German sentiment in the local Czech population. Heydrich stepped onto Prague soil a happy man. The marginalization of von Neurath, his predecessor, had been his doing, having sent countless reports exaggerating the strength of the Czech resistance and von Neurath's inability to oppose it. Some later suspected that several of the more serious acts of sabotage in the lead-up to Heydrich's appointment, including the detonation of explosives outside of a German children's home, were carried out by the Gestapo and SD under Heydrich's orders. Heydrich knew he had a tough line to walk in his new home. He needed to crush any and all signs of resistance, while putting the region's substantial armaments industry to work, ensuring it played its part in feeding the German war machine. His first move was to increase industrial and farming wages, making them equivalent to those in Germany. This carrot was soon followed by a series of progressively larger sticks, however. He declared martial law, and set up a number of specialized courts. Here, anyone accused of acting against the political or economic interests of the protectorate would be tried with very little chance of acquittal. Within weeks of his arrival, the region's prison population swelled by 4,000. Those unfortunate enough to pass through Heydrich's court system would often be sentenced to death by firing squad or end up on a train destined for Mauthausen-Gusen concentration camp in Austria. Heydrich made a concerted effort to target ex-army officers and members of the country's political and intellectual elite for execution. People, he suspected, were of great importance to the Czech resistance movement. In just five months of Heydrich's rule, 486 citizens of Prague were executed, with a further 2,242 deported to camps. From his base of operations in the UK, Edvard Benesch read each new communication from Prague with despair. Benesch had become president of Czechoslovakia in 1935, but was forced to resign his position due to Nazi pressure in the aftermath of the Munich Agreement, in which Germany, Italy, France and the UK had agreed to Germany's occupation of the Sudetenland. Benesch went into hiding, ending up in Partney, London, where he established a government in exile, with the support of Frantisek Morovich, the head of Czechoslovakia's intelligence service. Morovich and ten of his fellow intelligence officers had fled Prague in March 1939, taking with them files containing the most valuable intel they had to continue the fight against the Nazis. The fall of France in 1940 had left Britain standing alone against Hitler. It was believed that the mobilization of resistance forces in occupied European territories to conduct espionage, sabotage, and gather information on their enemies was the best path forward. And so, the Special Operations Executive, or SOE, was born. With the Czech resistance movement loyal to the government in exile, with whom they remained in constant radio contact, Benej and Morovich suddenly found themselves in a strong position and their government was formally recognized by Britain in July 1940. Their prized asset was Paul Tumel, codenamed A54, a German double agent who was a high-ranking member of the Abwehr, Germany's military intelligence organization, who provided them with intel throughout the war. The strategy of the Czech resistance to this point had been deliberately low-key, 
favoring persistent but low-stake acts of sabotage and passive resistance. It was felt that larger-scale attacks would result in a swift and brutal response from the occupying Germans, resulting in the loss of key figures and preventing the resistance forces from offering vital support at a time when their allies could properly assist them. However, Czechoslovakia's allies were growing impatient and wanted action. The German invasion of the Soviet Union, Operation Barbarossa, had left the Russians in a vulnerable position, and they were hoping disruptions in occupied Europe would relieve some of the pressure on the Russian front. On top of this, communications with the Czech resistance, as well as Tumel, had been disrupted and needed to be re-established. Benesch was concerned about reprisals against the Czech people, but felt he had to act nonetheless and committed to flying in teams of agents to gather intelligence, make contact with local resistance groups, and engage in acts of sabotage. 3,000 soldiers of the Czech Brigade were currently located in Leamington Spa, having traveled to Britain following the fall of France. The most skilled and courageous of these men were selected for three teams, each with different missions that would be parachuted into Czechoslovakia together. Their preparation started with a stint in a paramilitary school in the Scottish Highlands for commando training and was followed by a five-day parachute course. Whilst preparing for their missions, Benesch and the rest of his government in exile had to contend with a steady stream of info detailing Heydrich's misdeeds against their people in Prague. His cruelty couldn't go unanswered, and Benesch began discussing the possibility of assassination. A plan was put together, the details of which were known only to a select few. Benesch understood the risks attached to such an operation, but felt it was vital to show the world that his people would not go quietly and were willing to take spectacular action against their oppressors. The mission had a name, Operation Anthropoid. Now Benesch just needed to find the right men for the job. The British instructors had kept a close eye on their Czech recruits during the training for the upcoming mission, watching not just their physical performance, but noting their interpersonal relationships that had developed. Two that stuck out were Josef Gabčík and Jan Kubisch. Gabčík was 29 years old and hailed from Slovakia, where he had worked as a locksmith. He had served in the Czech army for over six years, but was demobilized after the Munich crisis. He later saw action in France, fighting in the Czech division of the French Foreign Legion, where he was decorated for his efforts during the Battle of the Marne. Despite having a reputation for being quick to anger, he was popular amongst his fellow soldiers. Kubisch was a more reserved character. His soft-spoken nature, a good balance to Gabčík's fiery temperament. He was 28, and his military career had followed a similar trajectory to that of his colleagues. He too had served in the French Foreign Legion and was awarded the Czechoslovak War Cross for his bravery in occupied France. Both men were devout patriots who accepted their mission without hesitation, thrilled at the opportunity to take down the man now often referred to as the Butcher of Prague. Absolute secrecy was vital to the mission's success. It was for this reason that the Czech Home Army would not be informed of Operation Anthropoid ahead of time, out of fear that communications between the resistance and the government in exile had been compromised. For Gabčík and Kubisch, 
This meant one thing, a nighttime parachute drop with no one to welcome them on the ground. The two would-be assassins were prepped by the SOE. It was decided that the best time to make a move on Heydrich was whilst he was traveling in his car, specifically at a corner along his route to work where he would be forced to slow down. For the attack, Kubish and Gabchik would be armed with guns and grenades, as well as cyanide pills that they would take in the event of their capture. Their weaponry and basic training aside, there was little else that could be prepared in advance. The men of Operation Anthropoid would be parachuted into Prague alongside two other teams, Silver A and Silver B, both of whom were tasked with restoring communications with various elements of the Czech resistance. At 10 p.m. on December 28, 1941, they took off from an RAF base in Tangmir. The weather was poor and visibility low, making it difficult to identify any landmarks. Rather than abandoning the mission, the pilot opted to drop his passengers in their approximate locations. And at 2.24 on the morning of December 29th, Gabchik and Kubish hurled themselves from the aircraft into the dark winter sky. Their mission got off to a rocky start when Gabchik misjudged his approach, landing heavily on the frozen ground and injuring his left foot. After burying their parachutes, the pair were distressed at the absence of any of their expected landmarks. They had missed their drop zone, of that they were certain, but by how much? The men regrouped in the abandoned tunnels of a nearby quarry. There, they were soon discovered by a local miller. He'd been woken by the low-flying plane and, assuming it was dropping parachutists, decided to check the tunnel, the only decent hiding place for miles around. Luckily for them, he was a Czech nationalist and sympathetic to their cause. Their relief was short-lived and turned quickly to frustration when they learned they had landed over 20 kilometers away from Prague. Whilst Gabčík and Kubish had been explicitly ordered not to link up with local resistance, Gabčík's injury meant that they would need time to recuperate. So they took up their new acquaintance's offer to introduce them to some like-minded people in Prague. The pair spent the next few months moving between a network of safe houses, sleeping with their pistols under their pillows, and always checking their escape routes when moving to a new location. Their time was spent gathering information on their target's daily routine, an unglamorous task which saw them spending endless hours hidden in ditches, watching Heydrich make his commute from his residence in Penenska Brezhny to Prague. With the help of informants amongst Heydrich's domestic staff, many of whom were Czech, the men started to build a reliable picture of his movements. In May of 1942, the Czech Whisper Network informed Gabčík and Kubisch that Heydrich would be flying to Berlin on May 27th to meet with Hitler and potentially take on a new position. Heydrich might never return to Prague. Gabčík and Kubisch were out of time. They knew what Heydrich's movements would be on that day and planned to strike in the Prague suburb of Holozovice. Here, Heydrich's car would have to slow down as it passed through a crossroads followed by a sharp bend on a hill. The site was a good distance from the nearest garrison or police station, which would give the assassins time to flee the scene by bicycle. They would position themselves either side of the road, near a tram stop, blending in with the morning commuters. Josef Valchik, a member of the Czech resistance, would be joining them and signal Heydrich's arrival with a pocket mirror. The evening before the assassination, Gabčík and Kubisch 
made their final equipment checks. They were nervous. The past five months had been all leading up to this. Failure was not an option. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. May 27th was a bright spring day. Gabchik and Kubish left their safe house early that morning, both carrying briefcases. Gabchik's contained a Sten submachine gun. Lightweight and easily broken down into three pieces, the Sten was selected for its portability. Cheap to produce, lethal at short range and capable of firing 550 rounds per minute, it became the weapon of choice for resistance forces during World War II. The explosives, carried by Kubish, were a more bespoke creation, developed specifically for Operation Anthropoid by the SOE. Looking at first glance like an aerosol can wrapped in tape, the bomb had a cap which needed to be unscrewed before the fuse was set and the explosive was thrown. Kubish had practiced with it at length, throwing it at a car traveling at various speeds during training exercises at an SOE facility. The men took a tram to the suburb of Zizhkov, where they'd left their bicycles. After strapping the cases to the handlebars, they rode to Holozovice. There they met Valchik, who got into position on the side of the road at the top of the hill, ready to signal to his co-conspirators with his mirror. Under the cover of a raincoat, Gabchik knelt down and assembled the Sten, before crossing the street to a small mound near the tram stop. On the opposite side of the road, Kubish lay in wait, hiding behind a lamppost in the shade of several large trees. Heydrich, normally a creature of habit, was uncharacteristically behind schedule. He had taken an impromptu walk with his family in the castle gardens, and by the time he left that morning, it was almost ten o'clock. His preferred mode of transport was a green, open-top Mercedes 320 Cabriolet B. Heydrich sat in the front next to his driver and bodyguard, Johann Klein. Back at the corner in Holosevice, Gabchik and Kubish were becoming increasingly concerned. The rush hour crowds they had hoped to conceal themselves amongst had long since dispersed, leaving them feeling very conspicuous. Had Heydrich altered his itinerary, they wondered? Had they missed their opportunity? Then, at 10.32, after what felt like an eternity, Gabchik and Kubish saw the flash of Valchik's mirror. Heydrich was coming. The two men readied themselves. Gabchik released the safety on the Sten, whilst Kubish flipped open his suitcase, taking out a bomb. At the same time as Heydrich's car approached, a passenger-laden tram arrived at the junction. Gabchik and Kubish knew that their choice of location meant civilians could potentially be caught in the crossfire, but it was a risk they felt they had to take. When the Mercedes slowed down at the turn, Gabchik stepped out of his hiding place, raised his weapon and pointed it at the oncoming vehicle. <laughs> 
squeezing the trigger. To his horror, his gun jammed. The next few moments appeared to unfold in slow motion. As Gabchik fumbled desperately with a sten, Heydrich, thinking he was dealing with a lone gunman, ordered Klein to stop the car. He stood up and drew his pistol, pointing it at his assailant. At the same time, a bomb thrown by Kubisch landed at the rear wheel rather than its intended target inside the car. The resulting explosion sent shrapnel into Kubisch's face and tore through the windows of the passing tram. Smoke from the damaged Mercedes and screams from the passengers filled the air. Heydrich and Klein jumped out of the wrecked car, pistols in hand. Klein made after Kubisch, who was now stumbling away from the junction, barely able to see where he was going. He grasped at the air, his fingers finding the handlebars of his bicycle, which he had left leaning against a nearby lamppost. Between the shell-shocked passengers emerging from the tram and the growing number of concerned bystanders, the junction was now crowded with people. Kubisch fired his pistol into the air to clear a path through the chaos, pedaling as fast as he could. Klein took aim at the would-be assassin, but like Gabchik's moments earlier, his gun jammed. Meanwhile, Heydrich limped towards Gabchik, who at this point had dropped his weapon and was making a move for his own bicycle. Heydrich fired off several shots, forcing Gabchik to take shelter behind a telephone pole. Gabchik pulled his own pistol and exchanged several shots with his target, who had taken cover behind the tram. With bullets whizzing over his head, Gabchik knew he had to make a move. The police were undoubtedly on the way, and once they arrived, his chances of escape would be slim. Stepping out of cover to return fire, he saw Heydrich stumble, catching himself against a railing whilst clutching his side. Gabchik saw his opening and took it, sprinting away from the scene. Having failed to take down Kubisch, Klein had returned to Heydrich's aid. Heydrich, the color draining from his face, waved away his concerned bodyguard's efforts to help, shouting through gritted teeth, Get the bastard! gesturing in Gabchik's direction. Gabchik reached the crest of the hill before turning down a side street. He stumbled into the first open door he came across, finding himself in a butcher's shop. Unfortunately for Gabchik, the proprietor was a Nazi sympathizer who was disinclined to aid the panicked intruder. Instead, running into the street and screaming for help, drawing the attention of Klein, who was still in pursuit. Klein burst into the shop, colliding with Gabchik in the doorway. Gabchik fired off a shot, hitting Klein in the leg, who dropped his gun. Gabchik jumped over his downed opponent and fled. Heydrich knew he was in trouble. Slumped against the bonnet of his car, he watched as a dark stain spread across his uniform. An off-duty Czech policeman who had been on the tram when the bomb had gone off came to his aid and stopped a passing truck. Moments later, Heydrich found himself lying flat on his stomach in the cargo bed, next to crates of wax and floor polish, every bump in the road sending a fresh jolt of pain through his abdomen. Shortly after 11am, he arrived at Bolovka Hospital, where he was rushed to the emergency room. An X-ray revealed that as well as cracking one of his ribs and rupturing his diaphragm, the explosion had driven horsehair fibers and pieces of wire from the car's upholstery into his spleen. Immediate surgery was recommended. Heydrich agreed, but demanded that the operation be performed by a Nazi doctor. Professor Joseph A. Holbaum from the German Surgical Clinic of Prague was sent for. Shortly after midday, 
Heydrich was wheeled into the operating theatre. The Gestapo, who had learned of the attack on Heydrich from the Czech police, heavily fortified the hospital, whitewashing the windows to protect against sniper attacks and even mounting machine guns on the roof. At the site of the ambush, Heinz von Panwitz, the Gestapo officer responsible for investigating assassinations and sabotage, began assessing the scene. Gabchik's bicycle, the suitcase containing the second bomb, and the Sten were recovered. Stens were famously manufactured in Britain. That fact, along with the British plastic explosives, fuses and detonators found in the bomb, led Panwitz to conclude that the assassins were parachutists who had originated from the UK. Upon learning of the attempt on Heydrich's life, Hitler was incensed, calling for a swift and brutal response. He demanded no less than 10,000 arrests and ordered the execution of every political prisoner in the country. A reward of one million marks was offered for any information that could lead to the capture of Heydrich's attackers. That afternoon, a state of emergency was declared and Prague was placed under lockdown. All traffic in and out of the city was stopped a 9pm curfew was initiated, and that night a citywide search began. Over 35,000 homes were searched by a force made up of German and Czech police, assisted by SS troops and regular soldiers. 541 arrests were made, largely of people who lacked adequate papers. Three days later, the reward for information about the attackers was doubled. Very quickly, the manhunt spiralled out of control. The city's inhabitants were warned that anyone found to be aiding the suspects in any way would be executed, along with their families. The police knew that one of the assassins had been injured during the attack and had all 7,000 doctors in the region write sworn statements saying that they had not treated either of the men. Every person over the age of 15 was ordered to register with the police. Anyone who failed to do so was shot. Within a week of the ambush, 157 people had been executed by Nazi firing squads. And yet, even with thousands of men combing every inch of the city, no trace of the attackers was found. Gabchik and Kubish were more surprised than anyone that they had managed to evade capture for so long. They had taken on the mission knowing full well how slim the chances of escape were. They spent the first few days after the attack moving through a network of safe houses in Prague, maintained by members of the Czech resistance. With all traffic in and out of the city being closely monitored, any attempt to smuggle them out of Prague at this point would have been far too risky. Instead, a contact in the resistance arranged for them to be hidden in the catacombs of the Karol Boromejski church. Located a short walk from the city's largest square, the place of worship became known as the Parachutists' Church due to its willingness to shelter soldiers who touched down in the region for various missions. A preacher, Vladimir Pityek, agreed to shelter Gabchik and Kubish, who found themselves joined in the catacombs by five other parachutists, all members of Silver A and B. For Gabchik and Kubish, the dark, damp surroundings of the catacombs did little to lift their spirits. They had failed in their mission to kill Heydrich, and the reprisals being inflicted on the people of Prague weighed heavily on their consciences. Gabchik in particular was racked with guilt, placing the blame on himself for the jammed Sten. They didn't know it yet, but less than 10 kilometers away in his hospital bed in Belovka, Reinhard Heydrich was fighting for his life.
their mission wasn't a failure. At least not yet. Initially, Heydrich's doctors had been optimistic about his prognosis. The surgery had gone well and his condition appeared to be improving. However, mere days after the procedure, he collapsed whilst eating lunch and slipped into a coma. He passed away at 4.30am on June 4th. His cause of death listed as wound infection. Hitler was furious, devastated at the loss of a man he considered one of the shining stars of the Nazi leadership. Heydrich's death would not go unanswered, and the Führer demanded blood. On the 27th of May, 1942, a married man named Vaclav Riha had sent a letter. It was a painful one for him to write. It was addressed to a woman, Anna Marushkakova, arriving at her place of work in the town of Shlani. Vaclav and Anna had been having an affair, and the letter was his way of calling it off, using deliberately ambiguous language to conceal the true nature of their relationship. Anna's employer, a Nazi sympathizer, intercepted the letter, and, believing it to be a coded message relating to the attempt on Heydrich's life, sent it on to the police. Under immense pressure to produce a lead on Heydrich's killers, the Gestapo latched onto one detail in particular. Vaclav had sent regards on Anna's behalf to the family of Josef Horak from Lidice. Lidice is a small mining village about 20 kilometers west of Prague with 503 inhabitants. Whilst there was nothing to directly connect it with Gabčík and Kubisch, through a series of unfortunate events, its community bore the brunt of the brutal Nazi response to Operation Anthropoid and the death of Reinhard Heydrich. Lidice had first come to the attention of the Gestapo following the capture of a Czech agent, Corporal František Povelka. Pavelka had been arrested several weeks after parachuting into Czechoslovakia whilst on a mission to re-establish communications with members of the local Czech resistance in October 1941. He carried with him the addresses of two safe houses, both located in Lidice. The families who lived there, the Horaks and the Strabianis, both had sons serving with the Czech forces in Britain. This information, along with the fact that Lidice was located in a region known to be favoured by parachutists, led to the village being surrounded and searched by the Gestapo the day after the attack on Heydrich. No sign of Gabčík and Kubisch was found. But after the discovery of the letter, the Gestapo decided that the parachutists had been aided and abetted by the inhabitants of the village. On the 9th of June, shortly after 9.30pm, every male inhabitant of Lidice over the age of 15 was herded together in front of the Horax farmhouse, 173 of them in total. In groups of 10, they were made to stand in front of a barn lined with mattresses to prevent ricochets and shot, before being buried in a mass grave by Czech Jews from the concentration camp at Terezin. The parish priest, Josef Stembaka, was offered mercy if he could keep his congregation calm and orderly. He declined, stating, I have lived with my flock, and now I will die with it. A number of women who refused to leave their husbands' sides, as well as several men who happened to be away from the village that night but were found later, were also executed. 203 women and 105 children were detained in a school in a nearby town of Kladno. Mothers and children were separated 
the women sent to Ravensbrück, a women-only concentration camp, whilst the children were deported to the Jewish ghetto in Woz, Poland. Back in Lodice, the security police set the village ablaze, detonating anything that still stood after the fire and slaughtering all the animals. The bodies of those who had been buried in the mass graves were looted for gold fillings and jewellery before having their remains burned. In a final effort to erase any traces of the village from existence, all roads in and out of the town were rerouted. The complete and utter destruction of Lidice was a clear statement by the Nazi leadership that any links to resistance activity, however tenuous, would be met with the harshest punishment imaginable. In the catacombs of the Karol Boromeshki church, Gabchik and Kubish rejoiced at the news that their target had succumbed to his wounds. Their relief was short-lived, however, and was soon overtaken by their horror at the Nazis' brutal response to Heydrich's death. News of the massacre at Lidice tipped them over the edge. They could no longer remain hidden, whilst their fellow Czechs were forced to pay the price for their actions. They discussed their options, and at one point considered hanging signs around their necks, indicating their responsibility for the killings, and then committing suicide in a public park. They were ultimately dissuaded by Petiek and their fellow parachutists, who convinced them that their deaths were unlikely to prevent further Nazi reprisals, and that they had a duty to continue to fight for as long as they were still alive. With that said, they couldn't stay in the catacombs indefinitely. The church's bishop, concerned at the increasing intensity of the Nazis' reprisals, ordered the parachutists to move on, fearful of the consequences for his congregation should they be discovered. The resistance began to make plans to smuggle the man out of Prague. Panvitz, now two weeks into his search for Heydrich's killers, was under intense pressure to deliver scalps to the Nazi leadership. The campaign of terror on the people of Prague had failed to bring him any closer to the men responsible, and he now believed it was creating an atmosphere where citizens would be too afraid to come forward with leads that could help direct his search. On June 13th, a proclamation was issued, stating that anyone who could provide information that led to their arrests would be offered amnesty. The new approach worked. Over 2,000 statements were collected in three days. On June 16th, a man walked into the Gestapo headquarters at the Pechtek Palace, claiming he had information about one of the attacker's briefcases. He was immediately brought before Panvitz. His name was Karol Kierda. Kierda was himself a Czech parachutist who had been dropped into the country for a sabotage mission on the Skoda armaments factory. Disillusioned with the Czech government in exile, and unable to allow the people of Prague to suffer any more on behalf of Heydrich's assassins, Kierda provided Panvitz with information that exposed the resistance safe house network, which in turn led the Nazis to the Karol Boromeshki church. A potential location for the assassins finally in his grasp, Panvitz immediately began a plan of attack. He surrounded the church with 700 troops, stressing the need to take the men alive. At four in the morning on the 18th of June, a Gestapo detail rang the doorbell where they were let in by a confused janitor. They fanned out and searched the nave before coming across the locked metal grill, which led to the choir loft. They forced it open and were greeted with a grenade, which bounced down the stairs before exploding, injuring several men and shattering most of the lights. SS men, stationed on the roofs of the surrounding buildings, began firing wildly into the church. 
Panvitz ordered his men to cease fire, fearful they would shoot one another in the dark, cramped church, and withdrew. By now, several of the altar hangings had caught fire, and the nave began to fill with dust and smoke. Attacking their targets would not be easy. The parachutists' base in the choir loft could only be accessed by a narrow, winding staircase. Eventually, after relentlessly grenading their position, the SS troops managed to make their way up to the roof where the firefight carried on for a further two hours. When the dust cleared, three slump figures were discovered. Two of them were dead, having taken their poison capsules to avoid capture. The third was unconscious and badly wounded. It was Kubish. He had fought until the bitter end, and feeling himself growing woozy from blood loss, he attempted to commit suicide, but passed out before he could ingest his cyanide capsule. Kubish was transferred to a nearby hospital, but died shortly after being admitted. He and his companions had been sleeping in the loft when the Germans had arrived, fed up with the oppressive darkness of the catacombs. Panvitz suspected there were more parachutists still hiding in the church. The preacher, Vladimir Petiek, admitted as much under interrogation pointing Panvitz and his men towards the concealed entrance to the catacombs, where four more parachutists were hiding. Wanting to avoid a repeat of the skirmish in the church roof and determined to take the men alive, Panvitz had his men make announcements over loudspeaker, telling the resistance fighters that they would be treated as prisoners of war if they gave themselves up. Gabchik and his colleagues didn't take them up on their offer, sending a barrage of shots in the Germans' direction instead. Panvitz's next move was to flood them out. He called in the Czech Fire Brigade, who used their hoses to pump water into the catacombs at a rate of 660 gallons per minute. The parachutists cut the hoses and pushed them out of the opening, responding with a volley of gunfire and Molotov cocktails. As the hours went by, Panvitz and his forces grew increasingly frustrated. What was supposed to be a quick and brutal demonstration of German force had turned into a lengthy siege. Finally, it was decided that they would attack the church on two fronts to overwhelm the parachutists, entering the catacombs through the entrance by the west door, whilst simultaneously blowing open the main entrance with explosives. Before they could carry out their final assault, however, four shots rang out. A soldier sent in to investigate reported back that the remaining parachutists, Gabchik amongst them, had shot themselves. After holding off the Germans for over six hours, they had chosen to take their own lives rather than surrender. Operation Anthropoid was the only successful assassination of a top-ranking Nazi official carried out by a government for the duration of the war. However, the merits of the operation have long been debated. Whilst it was argued that Heydrich's death was a potent symbol of resistance, which showed that there were vulnerabilities in the seemingly unstoppable Nazi war machine, the assassination was ultimately of limited strategic value. Disruptions to military operations and the ongoing transportation of Jews to Eastern Europe were minimal. A successor to Heydrich in Prague was quickly appointed, and the Czech arms industry continued to be a vital part of the German war effort for the remainder of the conflict. The Czech people paid a heavy price for the death of the Butcher of Prague. Reprisals continued throughout the summer, with the leadership of the Karol Boromejski Church amongst the victims. All told, 
Over 5,000 Czech people lost their lives in the violent wave of German retribution. The majority of them, innocent civilians. For Benej and his government in exile, whilst they publicly touted the positive outcomes, such as the immediate dissolution of the Munich Agreement, privately they felt they had underestimated the scale of the German reprisals. And for the remainder of the war, were more considered in the demands of the Czech resistance. Gabčík and Kubisch were buried in a mass grave in Dublitsa, alongside thousands of fellow Czechs. Today, the building where they made their last stand is now commonly known as the Parachutists' Church. Crosshairs is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Jonathan Guy Lewis. Our music is supplied by KPM. Sound design by Tom Bruins. And this episode was written and produced by Jack O'Kennedy. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please give it a rating and review. There's a new episode of Crosshairs every week. And if you can't wait for that, why not check out more What's the Story content at www.whatsthestorysounds.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.